0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here hosts Dandry Leyland. It's December, which means, and has meant for the last few years, a new Star Wars film. In fact, the last Star Wars film. Again. Yes, it was the last Star Wars film in 1983. And it was the last Star Wars film in 2005. And it's the last Star Wars film again now in 2019. Well, the last of George Lucas's nine film Skywalker saga, anyway. Or was that 12 films? I can't keep it all straight. Nevertheless, this is the end of the saga that began with Star Wars in 1977 and has spanned 42 years, 9 films, 3 spin-off films, 2 TV movies, 6 animated series and 1 streaming TV show. Not to mention books, comics, audio dramas and everything in between. Of course, this isn't actually the last Star Wars film at all. There will be more, and more TV shows and animated series and more books and comics and everything else. But this is the last of the saga films, the films actually about the Skywalker family line. Because lest we forget, early Star Wars materials all boasted the tagline from The Adventures of Luke Skywalker which was intriguing as it held the promise of other Star Wars adventures that weren't from the adventures of Luke Skywalker. And, of course, this is what the new owners of Lucasfilm, the Walt Disney Corporation, are hoping that there are other adventures to be mined from George Lucas's creation. It was this way from the very beginning. Following the hugely successful adaptation of the initial movie in 1977, an adaptation that spanned the first six issues of the new monthly Star Wars comic, Marvel ploughed new paths, taking the characters in new directions with new adventures, featuring the characters set in between this film and the hoped-for sequel. Writer Roy Thomas, who'd lobbied for Marvel to publish Star Wars over head honcho Stanley's objections, wrote the first story in the series. It was after this that Thomas ran into problems. As he relates in his introduction to the Star Wars The Marvel Years Omnibus Volume 1, the adaptation went pretty smoothly, Lucasfilm needing all the promotional help they could get for this little-known, modestly-budgeted science-fiction fantasy movie with no big stars and the odds stacked against it. Once the film was a hit, Thomas came across a number of creative roadblocks. For one, he found he couldn't develop the romance between Luke and Leia, nor could he use the film's central villain, Darth Vader. Thirdly, he was forbidden from referencing the Clone Wars. With these restrictions in place, Thomas pitched a space-age take on The Magnificent Seven, having noticed that Star Wars itself homaged westerns such as The Searchers, as well as other movies such as The Hidden Fortress, The Downbusters, and Flash Gordon serials. This way, he could take his favourite characters from the movie, Han Solo and Chewbacca, and do a take on yet another old film that would not only fit in the Star Wars galaxy, but also allow him to ignore the characters he wasn't allowed to do anything with anyway. Along with artist Howard Chaikin, Thomas plotted the initial arc to run for four issues. With issue seven, the comic moved beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy. George Lucas gets a credit, which is more than he does for the new films, and issues 7 through 10 really embrace the sci-fi pulps for the covers, as well as tapping into the space-western vibe. Issue 7's cover has Han Solo blasting away at an off-cover presence, with a wanted poster behind him, and Chewbacca, who is more ape like here, aiding his buddy. Issue 8 has Han and the motley crew is assembled for the job, symbolically astride an entire world. Issue 9 has Hard blasting an attack by the Cloud Riders and issue 10 sees Han and Chewie tackle a Godzilla-type beast. The first three covers were drawn by Gil Kane and Tony Dizuniga and issue 10 was drawn by Rick Hoberg. All of them evoke the spirit of the movie posters of the time as well as the over-the-top melodramatics of the Marvel comics of the era. The plot runs something like this. Han leaves the Rebellion behind to go and pay off Jabba the Hutt with the reward money he earned saving Leia from the Death Star. On the way, he is hijacked by space pirates, led by an old enemy, Crimson Jack, and his right hand woman, Jolly. They steal the money, causing Hard and Chewie to lay low under Duba 3, a backwater planet perfect for hiding pilot smugglers on the lam. After taking a small job burying a cyborg pilot, Han is hired by a few lowly farmers who are being harassed by a cloud rider named Sergi X Aragantus, who is demanding tribute for the farmers. These are scum of the highest order, killing the farmers' banthers, taking their food and their women, and generally being assholes. The farmers can't offer Han a lot of money, but Han's heart of gold gets the better of him. Realising he and Chewie aren't enough manpower for the job, he sets about recruiting allies and ends up with Hedgie, a spinner who can shoot quills from his forearms, a Mazer, den mother of the Black Hole Gang, and an old friend, of sorts, of Hans, elderly Jedi Knight Don 1 Coyote, really, giant green bounty hunting rabbit Jackson, and a young man named Jim the Starkiller Kid and his tractor droid FE9Q. Sergi tries to buy Han off, but when that doesn't work, they have their first conflict. After a brief scuffle, where Han saves a young nubile farmer girl named Mary, Han meets an elderly shaman, who it is said is capable of summoning a legendary monster to save the village. Han thinks this is bunk, but ruminations must wait as Sergi launches his attack, an attack that causes the destruction of Effie, the tractor droid. As the battle continues, the shaman summons the beast, who attacks Sergi and his men. The shaman's control isn't as great as he thought it was and he and Sergei end up crushed beneath the beast's massive paw. Still, Han and co now need to stop the behemoth as with no master it could destroy the village just as easily as Sergei and it's up to Don Juan to take it on Jedi style. Han figures out that the Jedi's lightsaber is interfering with the monster's energy beams and takes the saber off Don Juan and jams it into the beast's chest. It dies. Han and his cohorts take their meagre payments and all, except Jim, who has found that he quite fancies Mary, leave for pastures new. Issue 7, New Planets, New Perils, picks up a day or so after the movie. It's quite impressive how much Thomas was able to prefigure a lot of what would actually be done later with Han Solo. Much later, in many cases. The 2018 movie Solo, A Star Wars Story, is a western to its core, much like this story. Thomas's use of seedy dives, back alley dealings and low level smugglers really evokes Moss Eisley long before the Mandalorian would flesh out that little corner of the Star Wars galaxy and he quickly establishes that Han isn't as self-serving as he likes to make out making him relatable and likeable following up on his character arc in the film. Chewbacca by contrast seems a lot more bloodthirsty in the comic though and he doesn't really act as Han's Jiminy Cricket like he did in the film. Issue 7 is also mostly a standalone story whilst setting up the events of issues 8 through 10. Hahn helps an elderly alien priest to take a cyborg smuggler to his final resting place in a smuggler's grave. The other smugglers don't think the cyborg should be laid to rest with fully fleshy humanoids as its half machine like nature is an affront to their delicate sensibilities. It's interesting that Thomas chose to go here as the idea of being more machine than man, would play into Return of the Jedi. It's an inauspicious beginning, really. Hahn takes the gig because he really needs the money, whilst also expressing a distaste for the bigotry of his smuggling brethren, but it's not an assignment that really means anything to him. The story is at its best when it's fleshing out Han and Chewie's relationship and showing Han moving in other smuggler circles. As in Star Wars, we see Han hanging around in the cantina and hitting on women, Speaking of women, Thomas recognises the need to add further female characters to the proceedings, especially as he can't use Leia, so he introduces us to Jolly, Captain Jack's right-hand gun. She and Jack will be seen further as the series goes on, and their introduction gives Han a past that will continue to impact on its future. Jolly is portrayed as being one of the lads, wearing a respectable one-piece and beret, whilst Crimson Jack, so named for his Brian Blessed-sized red beard, is wearing pink leggings to each their own. In every other respect, the space pirate stuff is pretty B-grade science fiction, with the pirates themselves even dressed like Lon John Silver and armed with cutlasses. Plus a pirate with a red beard? Subtle. Thomas was apparently criticised by Lucas himself for just how close this adventure adheres to the Magnificent Seven template, but if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Besides, Lucas himself wasn't afraid of the odd homage. Witness a prominent gangster character in his Clone Wars cartoon series named Marlowe the Hutt. Lucas had a point, though. As the story progresses, the Magnificent Seven parallels become so apparent, I had to wonder where the lawyers were. The farmers are straight out of the movie, right down to the clothes they were, and some scenes are almost a comic book adaptation of the film. Perhaps Thomas felt it was fair game to base his story on an adaptation of a movie made by Japanese director Akira Kurosawa when Lucas openly acknowledged the influence of another Kurosawa movie, the aforementioned Hidden Fortress, on Star Wars itself. Thomas hasn't quite got the Star Wars language down yet. Understandable, given that all that existed at this point was 116 minutes of film and whatever offcut Thomas was allowed to see. Han refers to Sunday school, when I'm not even sure if a galaxy far, far away would have days as we understand them. After all, when you move from planet to planet as much as they do, how do they even measure their lifespans? The dialogue is often pulpier than a dozen oranges, and Thomas mixes up Dantooine and Tatooine. All these ooines presumably look the same. The cantina stuff in the comics is even more out there than in the film, with lots more ladies in elaborate states of undress, and both hard and chewy about to get lucky until they are approached by some out-of-towners with an offer for Solo. The art is the weak spot in this issue. Howard Chaykin's style is pretty scratchy at the best of times, so purring him with an equally scratchy inker, Frank Springer, doesn't really help matters. Art-wise matters pick up in issue 8, 8 for Aduba 3, with the addition of Tom Palmer on inks. Palmer can be quite overpowering as an inker, but it really doesn't matter here, as it improves the art no end. The characters start to look more like the actors, although not to the slavish, overly photo-reference degree of the more recent comics. The lead bandit, Sergi X Arrogantus, nicknamed The Arrogant One, just in case that subtle piece of nomenclature passed right over our heads... Not only has a name that sounds like Mexican comics creator Sergio Aragones, but he's drawn to resemble him as well. Again, lawyers? Thomas seems to want to paint Hahn as a gun for hire more than a smuggler, but for truthful, I didn't really get why Hahn would take this job. He made some money from the cyborg gig and was here to lay low. Something he's already blown by annoying all the other smugglers in town. One of whom has to know about Jabba's bounty on his head. Surely the sensible thing to do here is take the money, get back to the Falcon and get the hell out of Dodge. The farmers even tell Han they can't afford to provide much more than room and board. So it's not like he's in it for the money. In Star Wars, he tells Leia, I expect to be paid. And then, burly a day or so later, he's taking this gig out of the goodness of his heart? Unlike in the film, where he'd grown fond of Luke and had Chewie pushing in the right direction and letting his conscience be his guide, he has no real stake in the game. With the cyborg hire, he needed the money. But he also had an aversion to the bigotry of his fellow smugglers. Here, he has no such thing. He doesn't really care for the plight of the farmers. There's nothing personal in it for him. And he's not being well rewarded. By his own admission, he's outnumbered and outgunned. Hahn isn't a bad guy, per se, but he's not stupid either. The pilot film for the A-Team essentially rips off the Magnificent Seven just as this does, but they are mercenaries for hire. We've not really seen that that's Hahn's stock in trade. Still, he does take the gig and sets about recruiting his team. hedgie is a bipedal porcupine. Amazer is an old girlfriend with an aversion to clothing. Don Juan Quixote, the man of La Mancha, because that is his name, is an old Jedi whose backstory resembles the character he's named after. There's also the Starkiller Kid, whose resemblance to Luke and Sundance is purely accidental, I'm sure. The best remembered of these is obviously Jackson, the seven-foot-tall green rabbit who was much derided, but is actually a pretty cool character, and no stupider than any of the other knockoffs seen here. Also intriguing, Lucas, and Lucasfilm presumably, had a problem with the plot of the comic book story sticking very, very close to The Magnificent Seven, but had absolutely no problem with Thomas using a Jedi Master as part of his story despite them all having been said wiped out in Star Wars. Now, enough ambiguity is introduced into the story to imply that Don Juan Quixote may just be insane and has found a lightsaber somewhere, maybe from a dead Jedi killed in Order 66, but it does seem weird that Lucas had no comment on that character. Kudos to Thomas for again prefiguring the films with FE9Q, or Effie, He introduces the snarky self-aware robot well before L337 and K2SO. The Starkiller kid also has interesting moments. Beyond being given Luke's original surname of Starkiller, he's also dressed like Luke, right down to the floppy hat and goggles seen in photos of scenes cut from the film. With the kid, Don Juan, Amazer and Han and Chewie, it's like Thomas is giving us the main characters without actually giving us the main characters. Clever. Roy Thomas was pretty famous in comic book circles for his multiple subplots and ongoing stories, yet he keeps it all quite linear, more in keeping with his Conan work than his superhero stuff. Subplots are kept to a minimum, with Luke and Leia seen spurringly. The main setup for the future seems to be the Rebels locating a new base, and it's up to Luke to find them one. After all, Leia quite correctly figures they will need a new base once Darth Vader regroups with the Empire. This is the first indication that the opening crawl to Star Wars was incorrect. In it, the text clearly states that the destruction of the Death Star will restore freedom to the galaxy, the implication being the Empire has put all the Minox in one basket, perhaps at the expense of any other project. As it turns out, the destruction of the Death Star barely affects the Empire at all, and in the sequel, the Rebels are even scrappier and more outclassed than before. With issue 9, Showdown on a Wasteland World, Thomas must have thought that the last two issues were all too talky and amps up the action. The scenes in the camp, again, are all Xeroxed from the Magnificent Seven, with Han rescuing a young girl and getting to know the farmers. The introduction of the Shaman and the Big Behemoth is rather silly, even for Star Wars, but there at least seems to be some real stakes when Don Juan and Effie are killed in battle. Well, until the next issue... Issue 10's Behemoth from the World Below, when Don Juan is miraculously resurrected. I didn't understand this at all. Issue 9 makes it quite clear Don Juan is killed. Han even mentions that that's two down. But here, Don Juan is seen to wake up, relatively unharmed, look at his armour and go, Hey, my armour saved me! I guess Thomas changed his mind about killing the character when he, or his co-plotter, Howard Chaykin, decided that Don Juan's lightsaber would provide the key to killing the beast. It's a resurrection that makes little sense from a narrative standpoint. Don Juan doesn't slay the behemoth himself. Rather, it's Han who realises the behemoth has an aversion to the lightsaber, and Han who snatches it out of Don Juan's hand, and Han who kills the beast. Leaving Don Juan dead wouldn't have impacted on the story at all. Another curious story decision is made when the behemoth stands on the shaman and Sergi. This was very out of left field, it took the main antagonist out of the picture rather cleanly, leaving Hahn's hands free of blood, or free of the blood of a humanoid at least. Maybe Lucas was right to constantly retcon with a hand shot first. The story concludes with Hahn leaving to get the Millennium Falcon out of Hock. Wait, what? Where did this come from? Hock means to leave an item in return for a loan of money. Hahn didn't do that. He parked the Falcon on the outskirts of town. Odd in itself, given that there are spaceports, but whatever. And then immediately wandered into the gig with the cyborg smuggler. There was no mention that I could see of somebody keeping the Falcon in return for Han taking the gig. Yeah. Despite these nitpicks, the Aduba 8 storyline has a lot going for it. As one of, if not THE, first pieces of extended Star Wars storytelling, it shows the flexibility of the format. Pretty much any story can be transplanted to the Star Wars galaxy and made to work. It also demonstrated how the stories didn't really have to involve the Force, the Jedi, or even the Rebels versus the Empire to work. Bringing it all full circle the fourth episode of the current television show the mandalorian featured a plot not dissimilar to this one with mando and his new colleague having to help a bunch of farmers protect their land from an oppressive force roy thomas apparently knew what he was doing all along Out of 77. Oh, star wars nothing but star wars Give me those Star Wars! Don't let them Give me those Star Wars. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. la da 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 La da 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 Right. Let's have a look at some emails, should we? Our first email tonight is from Damian Lee who I met over summer. It was nice to meet. Hello, Damien. Hello, Andy. Delightful listening, he's ported, which is nice. Sometimes you need some positive reinforcement, don't you? Hi, Andy. I must start off by saying it was lovely to meet you again at LFCC this summer, and I'm glad you got to meet the shat. It obviously meant a lot to you. You're incredibly generous with your time, and like last year, talking to you was the real highlight of my summer. (laughs) Sorry if that sounds odd. It does not sound odd at all. Talking to me is the highlight of everybody's life. Well mostly everybody, We're now ensconced in Beijing, which is a far cry from Brunei and the UK. But hey, at least I won't be home for the promised Brexit revolution election of a government that will double down on the mistakes of the last few years. On our first free Saturday here, I managed to find the only comic shop in a city of 22 million people. And whilst it's very cool and unbelievably trendy looking, it has no back issues and charges about £4 an issue. Thank goodness 98% of my reading is older stuff nowadays. Well, um, £4 and issues about right now, over here, thanks to Brexit. Yes, the price of comics has increased over here because of the pound slumping against the dollar, thanks to Brexit. Well done, David Cameron. Now to the Palace. After spending the last couple of years fruitlessly searching for a podcast to fill the Hey Kids shape hole in my life, only Fantasticast comes close. <laughs> yeah. About that, I finally become a dedicated Palace fan. I'd initially been reticent to dive in because A, I would miss the father son banter of Hey Kids, and B, I was worried about running into spoilers for stuff that I still tell myself I'll get around to watching. Maybe if I live to be 200. Being unwell for a while early this year left me with some enforced downtime, so I was able to start a slow but deep dive into the palace. And, well, I've been a fool! A fool! I can't write about specific episodes, but only because over the last six months I've gone from initially cherry-picking and listening to episodes I knew I would connect with Babylon 5, early 80s cartoons, MCU Countdown, Star Trek, Sequest DSV, to listening to a smorgasbord of recent episodes, to now working my way through your entire back catalogue. This week I've enjoyed DC vs Marvel, lots I must read from that, and the Spider-Man 1 and 2 commentaries and more. It's been brilliant hearing your knowledgeable and considered thoughts on stuff I love, above, need to see more of, like Seven, Magnum, tie-in novels, and probably will never see, but I've enjoyed learning about, T.J. Hooker, modern Magnum, Jerry Anderson's back catalogue, and the greatest American hero. You inspired me to finally watch Star Trek Generations, for example. Hmm. Thanks. I guess. I'd seen most of it in bits and pieces over the years, but never actually sat down to enjoy it in one sitting. It was alright, I suppose. It felt like sitting down with some distant family I never got to know as well as I should have, having only seen a best-of selection of the next generation over the years. Now I need to see First Contact again, my sweet spot despite the Borg Queen problems it introduced, and to go back to my aborted DS9 rewatch. Well, watch, really, as I've only ever seen Seasons 5 and 6 and a smattering of other episodes. I've especially enjoyed your Spider-Man episode, and I'm currently waiting for my Spider-Man Omnibus Volume 2 to turn up with the rest of my shipping, and won an issue on your recent eBay auctions to enjoy them with your commentaries fresh in my mind. Yes, thank you very much for supporting the Send Anya to New York fund, which is why I've been selling my comics of late. Money is often a little bit tight. Um, That would have been... And so it was nice that people... Uh, I've supported that greatly, and I've managed to raise enough to make the first two payments. I'm going to be listing more stuff this week, which does nothing for you guys, because it won't be the week that this comes out, to hopefully make the third and final payment. Damien continues, we've just adopted two rescue dogs. Oh, that's nice. The awesome Burr and Poppy. So now I have up to an hour of walking every day, which is why I've been burning through your back catalogue even faster. I make sure I have a classic episode to listen to as well as your new episodes every week and I'm worried I'll run out soon, which is when I can return to the Fantasticast and listen along as I read the Burn Omnibus Omniboo. Goodness knows what I'll do when I'm up to date on that as well. I can either go back to the beginning of that or get serious about the Overlook Dark Night. Man, where do you find the time? Well, I've clawed some time back. However you do it, a deep, sincere thank you. Your podcasts have been a steady presence in my life for the last nine years, ever since I heard your promo on From Crisis to Crisis, the podcast that introduced me to podcasts. Uh, Yeah, me too. From Crisis to Crisis introduced me to podcasts. And listen to you and Michael tear apart the beloved secret walls. Still one of my favorite episodes, dude. I still think that's where it all started coming together. I've listened to you all over the world. Sunderland, New York, Brunei, Singapore, various hospital beds, Australia, Kuala Lumpur, Tokyo, and now in Beijing. You're basically my constant travel companion. I hope to be listening to you for a long time to come, and I'll be sure to make my next Amazon purchase in a way that benefits the show. You keep talking, and I'll keep listening. Thanks again, and I must buy you a drink if we cross paths next summer. Should you ever need a place to stay in Beijing, consider this an open invitation. We have a spare room. This paragraph may sound odd if you do read this online, but I'll leave that totally up to you. Best wishes and thanks again. (laughs) Damien. Damien's a lovely bloke. I've met Damien twice, both at London Film and Comic Con, and uh, it has been a joy to speak to him every time. And, And just giving you my time was no problem at all. The hour that we just stood there chatting was uh, was a delight and didn't seem like an hour. So it was it was lovely to meet you, and I'm glad that you're on the mend. After showing me your um, you, we did a seat like Jaws, you know, where they show people your scars. I've got a little scratch on my knuckle and a bit of a scratch on my forehead where I walked into a bus stop. And Damien's got lots of scars. <laughs> he was he was um, he was to my brooding. It was great. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, okay. Uh, I'm going to call it a day. Um, we're at half an hour. And again, I always squeeze these in and around other things. Because it's easy to do that when you're working on your own. And um, I need to call it a day because I've got to go off and, and post some eBay stuff that people have won. Uh, to support my uh, sending my daughter to New York on a college trip. So uh, I will see you all next time with a very special episode, my Christmas episode with Mr. Michael Bailey. But uh, exactly what we're doing, I'll keep under my hat just for now. I'll be a nice little Christmas treat for you, dropping on or around the 20th, 21st of December, around that time. Okay, okay. thank you for joining me and uh, I'll see you again real soon. And everything is going to be okay, hopefully, possibly, maybe we'll see. Catch you later. Bye-bye.